I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this episode, I have a conversation with Shauna Sigalow, the Director of Digital Storytelling for the nonprofit Define American. Define American is an organization that uses the power of narrative and storytelling to humanize conversations about immigrants. And they recently released a fascinating report which digs into anti-immigration narratives and disinformation on YouTube. I'll link to the report in the show notes, but in my conversation today with Shauna, she helps break down the tactics used in these videos and how they sway their audience's views on immigration. As we approach the midterms, we should all be on the lookout for disinformation around immigration because it's so often used as a scare tactic. Again, please check out the link in the show notes to read the complete report. In the meanwhile, please enjoy this truly insightful conversation with Shauna Sigalow of Define American. Shauna, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So Define American published a report that analyzed anti-immigration messaging on YouTube, right? Was this only on YouTube or did you look at other mediums? So we did decide to focus exclusively on YouTube in this report. There are a couple of reasons for that. We definitely know that uh, xenophobia and anti-immigrant sentiment is not unique to the YouTube platform by any means. But when we started our research a couple of years ago, there were some indicators that YouTube really was the most important site for far-right radicalization online. And there also hadn't been as many comparative studies on YouTube that there had been on Twitter and Facebook, respectively. So we thought that YouTube would be a good platform to start with. And what's the scope of the messaging? You know, what's the size of the audience, the approximate accounts that are doing this, you know, and how many views are they getting? The network that we looked at that we have called the Great Replacement Network on YouTube consists of the channels that have published the most viral anti-immigration videos of the last 15 years. So we looked at about a dozen channels that had uh, produced these highly viral videos. They represent over 100 million views uh, cumulatively. And what we saw with these videos is that there really was a cohesiveness, not only in the messaging and the packaging, but also in the channels that were producing them. We really saw that there were two major sources for the anti-immigration content that were the most viral. And those were a channel called Prager University, which is a far-right channel. They call themselves a university. They're not. Uh, They have no academic accreditation or relationship to any legitimate university. And they produce, their bread and butter are these explainer videos. And then the other site, sorry, publisher that we saw had the most viral videos was something called the Tanton Network, which is a consortium of anti-immigration think tanks that have actually been around since the 70s and have clearly made a very successful move into digital. Yeah, I'm familiar with Prager University. I mean, they're a pretty insidious group organization, right? I, I get your point about YouTube being, you know, a good platform for this, because when you think about it, other platforms like Twitter or Facebook, they're intended for kind of a fast consumption of the content, and then it disappears, right? No one or rarely do people go back and look at Twitter content from, you know, five years ago. But if you place something on YouTube, it's searchable and it's watchable for for years and years. So I can see how it's become really pervasive. And you talked about, you mentioned the great replacement theory, and that is kind of central to their message. And, you know, you hear about it a lot on the news, but can you explain just in simple terms what the great replacement theory actually is? Yes. So I think, unfortunately, we're all starting to become familiar with this online conspiracy theory. Its basic tenets are that a cohort of conspirators who are Jews are controlling 
obviously the media. We know that old conspiracy theory. But their aim is to increase immigration from countries with people of color to come into this country to dominate elections and have political sway. So the idea is that immigration is completely politically motivated by this elite Jewish class and that end goal is to is a white, quote unquote, white genocide. The idea is to replace white Americans with a population of people of color. And this is why it's, I mean, it's an inherently racist theory because the idea is that the immigrants of color are easier to manipulate at the polls. That's the aim of the Great Replacement. And, you know, I remember, I'm old enough to remember rather than, when the Great Replacement Theory was kind of this fringe idea, right? Like only seen in, you know, far right conservative corners, right? Not mainstream conservatism. You know, maybe they would skirt around the idea of the Great Replacement Theory. But now I feel as if it's become a part of the mainstream conservative, you know, the Republican Party, a part of their political messaging and their discourse. Is that fair to say? Yes, I think that's very fair to say. And I think that we can look to digital spaces for some of the reasons why that's the case. With our network, we saw that there was a tremendous amount of audience overlap between these kind of fringe far-right YouTube channels and more mainstream channels like Fox News or even ABC or MSNBC. So we know that kind of quote-unquote more mainstream audiences are being exposed to these messages. And we also know that they're being packaged in ways that don't look as extreme or fringe as perhaps the actual messages are. So um, I think that we know just watching Fox News, just watching Tucker Carlson, that this theory is really baked into a lot of the messaging of the Republican Party, especially when it comes to immigration. And I think it's worth thinking about the context of this research and the time that we're living in. We know the midterms are around the corner and we're really looking at 2024 and how this narrative likely will be employed again and immigrant communities will once again be under attack. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the midterms because, you know, it was as recent as I think 2012 when conservatives, you know, the conservative politicians, great replacement theory was not a part of their primary political messaging, right? I remember they did this postmortem after losing in 2012 and they actually cited, you know, the, the fact that they needed to reach out to these communities right? Because they needed their votes. And that's completely gone out the window. So it happened that quickly between 2012, them wanting to like court these potential voters to now just saying that they're trying to replace us. And I'm just curious as to, and I think you've already answered this, who is influencing whom, right? These groups that are online and YouTube who are pushing this messaging, are they influencing the party or is it the other way around? Or are they kind of like all influencing one another? It might feel a little chicken in the egg, but I do think there are some very clear indicators out there of the cause and effect. And I think we really have to look back at the 2016 election. There was some really great research that came out of the Berkman Klein Center around that election cycle and how different digital narratives around immigration were super influential in terms of the GOP talking points and really moving immigration to the center of that campaign, specifically Breitbart. I, I think we can't underestimate the role that Breitbart and these alternative news sites online played in you know, creating the narrative around immigration of the last few years, and especially when it came to that election cycle. A lot obviously can be traced back to the Trump campaign of 2016. So can you talk about um, the Great Replacement Network? You know, you talked about, you gave a couple of examples, but who's in that group, right? Is it mostly organizations, individuals, or individuals supported by organizations? Just talk a bit about, you know, what their tactics are and who they are. 
like I mentioned, I think the two most pervasive content creators in this network are Prager University and the Tantum Network. There are other channels, Fox, the New York Post, the Blaze, even the Hoover Institution, which traditionally is more mainstream conservative. And really to be part of this network that we studied, all that you needed to do was produce one of the most viral anti-immigration videos of the last 15 years. So we were really just looking at the heavy hitters. That's not to say that there aren't literally thousands of other channels producing anti-immigration content. But for the scope of this study, we really wanted to look at the most viral. And uh, one of the places that we started with for our study, we worked with a, a professor at the University of North Carolina, Dr. Francesca Tripodi, and we used a, a methodology with a, a for-profit marketing tool called Tubular, where we looked at different search term optimization tools to try to decipher, you know, where is the most anti-immigration content on the platform. And we realized that using search terms that we at Define American, having, you know, studied uh, immigration narratives for over a decade, we thought would, would turn up the content, right? Like uh, illegal immigration or anchor baby or really like offensive anti-immigration terms. And what we realized very quickly was actually we're not seeing the viral anti-immigration videos out there that we know exist. One in particular came to mind, which was produced by the Tantan Network organization Numbers USA. And just for your viewers who aren't familiar with the Tantan Network, John Tanton was a eugenicist who started a network of anti-immigration organizations. They're extremely well-funded, and they've really dominated the immigration narrative in the media for decades now. But they produced a video called Immigration, World Poverty, and Gumballs, where the president of Numbers USA, a man named Roy Beck, does a presentation in what looks to be a college lecture hall with jars full of gumballs, and positioned next to them is a small, tiny little glass. And we're talking about thousands, thousands of colorful gumballs. Each gumball represents a million people of color who theoretically are really trying to get into the United States. And the little cup represents the United States. So I bring up this visual because I think that it's a perfect encapsulation of not only the Great Replacement Theory, but also the Great Replacement Network. Here we have a video where someone who does not hold a master's or a PhD is giving an academic style lecture uh, with a data visualization that really conveys the great replacement theory. And, uh, you know, if you're an, uh, just an average person on, on YouTube and you see something like this, you're going to assume that it has academic merit and that it has credibility. And that was really the tactic that we saw time and time again in the content, that it really co-opted the aesthetic of education and academia to feel legitimate. And I think that why that's so important is because we all know that we're living in a time where trust in traditional institutions like news media, legacy news media, is at an all-time low. So people are turning to platforms like YouTube for their information sources. And if far-right organizations and individuals understand that they can package their conspiracy theories and kind of far-right propaganda to look educational, it's going to carry merit with the viewers. You know, it's interesting. They've mastered kind of this content packaging, right? Making it appear to be kind of an academic talk. Or I think you mentioned in the, in the report that they tried to make some of them look like TED Talks, which is pretty clever. And I think that speaks to the need of media literacy among like all of us, really, to be able to kind of break this down and maybe ask some important questions. Like, why would this official looking organization put out a video like this? Like, what's the purpose? 
you know, but they do some things also like explainers, like animated explainers. How effective are those? As part of our study, we were really curious in the packaging side. And just from a, a personal note, I come from a filmmaking background. I'm a documentary filmmaker. So I was super interested in, in this aesthetic exploration. And, you know, is there a different level of effectiveness based on what type of genre you deliver your message or who the messenger is? So we actually did a series of tests with a research group called Swayable, looking at genre, animation style, and messenger credentials. So we took a handful of videos from different popular digital genres. We had a short documentary. We had a roundtable discussion. Uh, we had a PragerU video in there. And we ran a test to see what would be the most compelling format for our target audience. And just as a sidebar, our target audience for our study was a group we call the movable middle. These are folks who are neither very pro nor very anti-immigration. These are, they kind of fall somewhere in the middle of the spectrum. And they're obviously an incredibly important demographic, both for the anti-immigration activists and pro-immigration activists to speak to. So we did a series of studies with that group to see if they did have any kind of aesthetic preferences. And what we found, unfortunately, is that PragerU has a great formula. Time and again, the explainer video format tested highest. The animation style that looked like PragerU tested highest. We also, in our messenger test, looked at specifically credentials. So we took a video, the same video four times over, and just gave the speaker a different credential. So in one test, he was a Princeton professor. In another, he was a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist. And in another, he was a social media influencer. And then in the final one, he had no credential at all. And what we found was that there really wasn't a huge difference between the highly credentialed speaker and someone with no credentials at all. And I think that obviously that's, that's a little dispiriting because we'd like to think that these you know, institutions and these uh, merits that we've always relied on for authority uh, translate to digital audiences. And I bear mentioning, I think there needs to be more study into this particular question, but our research showed that that really isn't the case. Yeah, when I think about the way that I consume media, you know, and I'm just looking at something on, on YouTube, even if I'm watching something official, like a TED Talk, I don't look deeply into the person's credentials. I just don't, right? I mean, that kind of fast media, that fast content that we all consume, we rely on visuals <laughs> to signal their credentials. And I think most people don't do that, obviously. <laughs> Your studies, you know, bear that out. How do you even approach that? So what do you do? What's the solution? Yeah, it's, it's a difficult problem, isn't it? Uh, and I, I know that, you know, us in the immigration space are not the only people who are concerned with the spread of mis and disinformation and how platforms handle and uh, moderate and regulate the spread of, of bad information. One tactic that we are looking at as an advocacy organization is building more coalitions and media literacy within the nonprofit space. We actually took the findings from our research report and recommendations, and we put them into a shareable toolkit for other nonprofits and content creators. Uh, and we also think that actually the creator economy and social media influencers can play a really important role in the future of this type of education and uh, in combating mis and disinformation. One thing our study showed is that people really do trust the channels and influencers that they subscribe to. So in our minds, from kind of an advocacy activist perspective, those are community organizers. Those are people that are on the front lines who are speaking directly to audiences that we're trying to reach. So one of the tactics that we're taking is trying to involve more social media influencers and people with audiences 
who are susceptible to some of these, to specifically the great replacement theory, to get involved and start educating the public a bit more about what to look out for when it comes to this type of content. Yeah, but they have a lot of money behind them. Like who's funding Prager University and, and what is it, the Tantum Network? They have many funders. PragerU, the Wilkes Brothers in Texas, they're oil tycoons. I think they were the seed funders, but they have an extensive list of conservative funders at this point. And the Tantum Network also, um, they've been around since the 70s and, and they have hundreds of funders uh, from you know conservative organizations and, and basically millionaires and individuals, conservative philanthropies. So they are extremely well-funded. I'm not sure off the top of my head how much funding the Tantum Network has. I believe it's over $100 million collectively because, you know, they have over a dozen organizations uh, within the Tantum Network. And then PragerU, the last time I checked, it was, I think, over $20 million per year of budget. So we really are up against an anti-immigration media machine here. Extremely well-funded. You know, I have been playing the long game for a long time because they've had the funding to do so. I think a lot of times you know, on the more progressive side, on the nonprofit side, we don't have the resources to think in terms of 10 or 20 years. But when you look at the Tantum Network, they've been at this since the 70s. Yeah. You know, whenever I hear that, millionaires and billionaires, but whenever I hear that, it's just really disheartening to be reminded that the people with the most power in this country share the sentiments of people who are putting out this content, right? Right. They effectively employ a good percentage of people, you know, in the country. They run everything. They run the banks. They run, you know, the oil industry. And they have these anti-immigrant and racist views. And they're shelling out a lot of money to perpetuate them. And that's just a really depressing thought. I know. <laughs> I know. It is depressing. Also, not to add to the pile, but one of the things that motivates me in this work is I just believe that we really need to be addressing these narratives and these challenges now, because with climate change, we know that there's going to be a larger migration crisis and that, uh, you know, truly we're going to see, I think, a refugee crisis on another scale. So we really need to start talking about migration in a more humanized, accurate way to start to think about some real world solutions that are humane, because it can be very depressing out there. I hear this a lot. Like I hear it a lot in all of my interviews about the funding that's behind, you know, Project Red Map or the project behind, you know, these campaigns where they send people out to school boards to harass people. And now this, right? And they have all of these billionaires and millionaire funders. And it's not like the left or progressives don't have a lot of money. Totally. Right? Like we have people who could fund similar projects, right? Like these people have millions of dollars that they could use to fund. And I just don't know where the breakdown happens because it's not like, you know, everyone on the left is poor. They're not. Totally, totally. And I, I didn't mean to imply in my answer that we don't have our own philanthropic infrastructure. We totally do. I think what I was trying to get at is I don't think that we have the same focus on immigration. I mean, I know we don't have the same focus on the pro-immigration side around narrative. And that's the work that Define American has been really focused on and is trying to elevate. But I'm not aware of any other organization within the immigration space that is studying narrative in this way. And I think that the other side really has sophisticated tactics, not just for disseminating this stuff, but also for how to frame it and how to make sure they get it in front of the right audiences. I just think that part of that is there's just such a dire need on the grassroots side and on access to basic resources for immigrant communities. That's where a lot of the funding goes, as it should. 
But I do think that narrative change work, it's just starting to really get the attention, I think, in progressive spaces that it needs. I think that, you know, we're really hoping that this report can kind of shed, shed a light on the digital side of that work as well. You talked about the movable middle. Can you explain more of what that is, the demographics of the movable middle to the audience? So we were really curious about what audiences on YouTube, who are the audiences that actually might be swayed by some of this content? And again, we aren't exactly trying to go for folks that have already been radicalized. I think that there's really great work out there around trying to de-radicalize you know, people who have been exposed to extremist content and are really far down the rabbit hole. That's not the work that we do. And then on the other side, we're also not as concerned with basically preaching to the choir to um, folks that are already kind of convinced of the value that immigrant communities bring to this country and, you know, are already positive about finding a pathway to citizenship for, you know, undocumented folks. The people that we're most concerned with speaking to are the folks that I think, you know, might be on YouTube to get some education about immigration. And when they look in the search bar, the first video that comes up is PragerU video or a Tantan Network video. That's where we are really concerned with having an intervention, because I think that if the search terms are dominated by these anti-immigration pieces of content, then we're really pushing more moderate uh, voters and Americans towards the extremes. And in this day and age, I think that it's a really important space to develop interventions and to you know, speak to that particular audience. Yeah, I think in the report, you break down the demographics of the movable middle, and it tends to be whiter, like 70%, I think, are of that group are white, but there are some Black and Asian, Asian American audience members in that group. And I'm curious as to whether the, the content changes based on the target audience. Are they that sophisticated? That is such an excellent question. We don't have data on that. We did in our messaging test when we were looking at aesthetics, we did have breakdowns on data of which audiences we tested and how they responded to different aesthetic choices. And interestingly, it did vary quite a bit between different ethnic demographics. For example, the animation style that performed the best across the board with white, Asian, and Black audiences, the Latin A audience was actually really against. And we don't actually know why at this time, but I think that that is a really great place for further study. Um, it's very interesting how different communities are experiencing the same content. Wait, so Latin A audiences were really against what specifically? So we tested different animation styles and the style that we found performed the best across the board, almost across the board, was this kind of semi-realistic style that PriggerU uses all the time. But for some reason, the Latin A audience that we polled actually had a very negative reaction to that animation style. We didn't ask a research polling question around why, but I think that that'd be a great place for further research because it's interesting how different demographics kind of experienced the content in different ways. But our numbers for the overall study looked at overall reaction. We didn't break it down by demographic as closely. Well, that is really interesting. I'd be curious to know that too. So the next time, if you do another report, right? yeah, just like, why is that? One of the questions I meant to ask you earlier when we were talking about who is responsible for this content, right? You kind of mentioned some mainstream outlets, right? I mean, eventually it spills out into mainstream outlets. Like what does that look like and who actually helps pass along this messaging in the mainstream media? I know there's an example in the report of National Geographic and they have this, I don't know if it's a documentary or a show called Border Wars. Can you talk a bit more about that? 
Absolutely. So it's actually a series called Border Wars. We didn't formally include them in our network because the videos didn't specifically demonize immigrants or immigration explicitly. But what they did do was paint the border as a place of criminality. And that does contribute to the overall negative narrative. But they didn't technically, they didn't make the cut for our network. But I would say that probably the most important mainstream publication that perpetuates these narratives, unsurprisingly, is Fox News. And there's more study that needs to be done into this, but it's pretty clear that a lot of these kind of fringe, farther out there narratives start in these you know, smaller spaces online. They might start in kind of an extreme platform like a 4chan or an 8chan, and then they migrate to different platforms like a Reddit, eventually ending up on more mainstream platforms like Facebook or YouTube. And then finally, you hear Tucker Carlson basically expressing the great replacement theory on Fox News, which is the most popular news channel in America. So I think that there is a real movement, information, and narrative across digital that ends up in more mainstream news sites. And not to keep going back to Trump, but we also know that he was taking narratives directly from some of these spaces and putting them onto the president of the United States Twitter. So we know that a lot of these really harmful, inaccurate narratives are starting in kind of more extreme digital communities and are migrating over into more mainstream outlets. You know, when I think about this in the context of my own life, I think of my kid, you know, all kids, you know, love to watch YouTube. You know, they, they watch it like we used to watch television back in the day, right? You know, does this messaging intentionally target or does it reach teenagers and younger kids at all? Unfortunately, yeah. Prager U just came out with an entire curriculum for children, you know, like cartoons that are made for really young children that are packaged in a way that teachers can take them and teach them in, in classrooms, which they are doing across the country. So yes, we know that children are being targeted with these messages and it's absolutely an area of concern. I mean, there's a lot of research out there also about how detrimental um, watching a lot of engaging with a ton of social media is for the development of child psychology on its own. But on top of that, yes, we do need to be really concerned with these very toxic, dangerous narratives making their way into children's feeds. You would think that would be against their terms of use, right? Is there a plan to involve companies in, you know, countering this messaging, you know, Google who owns YouTube? Is there a plan to get them to take a stronger stance against this content and possibly removing it? Yes, there are a lot of organizations that focus on deplatforming, um, and I think that's really, really important work. But at Define American, we're really focused on what is the kind of central narrative being pushed in this content. So I think that when we're talking about something like the Great Replacement Theory, that can be baked into uh, the framing of an argument, into the depiction of an image. Sometimes this is what we call malinformation as opposed to mis- or disinformation, the inaccuracy can lie in the framing. And that makes it a lot harder to regulate and to make the argument for deplatforming. So at Define American, we're a narrative change organization. We really believe that in order to combat a narrative, you have to tell a better story. So our focus isn't necessarily on deplatforming. Again, I think that there are examples of content that warrant that and absolutely should be deplatformed. But a lot of times this content doesn't quite meet the qualifications of content moderation, but it still needs to be addressed. And these narratives still need to be responded to with counter narratives. And so that's the work that we're invested in. I would love to just reemphasize that I think if there's one 
point that I hope that people, you know, learn from this report and the work that we're doing is that I really believe there's this idea in this country that anti-immigrant sentiment is populist and that it's grassroots and it's coming from average Americans who are collectively fed up with immigrant communities. And, you know, of course, there's an element of that. But when you look at where these narratives come from and how they spread, it's extremely intentional and it's extremely top down. I would encourage people on YouTube to be very critical of the content they're consuming and looking into the sources where they come from. Well, Shauna, thank you so much for joining me. I'll share the report in the show notes. And thank you so much for doing this work. And I look forward to seeing what else you have next. Thank you so much. This was fun.